You'll note in our bulletin that during the Lord's Supper time, we're going to have a song that many of you know well. Uh, we're going to sing It Is Well with My Soul while we take the Lord's Supper. And I hope even as I give an introduction to our sermon here in 1 Samuel 20, you will understand why that's in the worship service. Um, this passage is rather confrontational. And I want to try to explain what I mean by that. Uh, I'm a pretty transparent teacher. Sometimes that's not good, and I don't want to say more than I should about myself because it's not something you need to know. I'm supposed to be teaching the Word and the Word only, but I am not that different than you are. Not that you think that, but sometimes I have to just wrestle through that in my life and in my relationships, I, I'm much like you are. I read things. I get texts from people at random times in the day. I get phone calls. I have voicemails. I remind myself to call them back. Sometimes there's something I don't want to do. Sometimes there's something I'm eager to do. I have anticipations of things I hope to do in the week to come, and I have many broken plans every single week. And as I have been thinking through even this text and where I was at earlier in the week studying it, um, you all know I have a wife and children. I have, a, I have college and financial burdens. I've got those kinds of things. I am mostly a husband and a spouse, uh, and, well, I am a spouse and a husband, and a dad who gets it less than right all the time, who needs the mercy of God in Christ. And I, with you, read the news, and I have strong opinions about things in the news. I have strong opinions about health care, about government, about peace and what's going on in Kiev, about Canada, about East Tennessee. And I, I'm, I'm learning to pray more deeply and speak less, less quickly about when and where I'm supposed to talk about what and where. But as I've been thinking through even this text, I realize how badly I want to be like the Apostle Paul. I've been reading through the book of Acts. And you come to the latter part of the book of Acts, and Paul would so frequently stand before different accusers, those who were religious, those who were civil. And he kept saying over and over to them, there's one reason I'm on trial. So the reason I'm on trial is not because I said this about that or this about there. It's because I believe and I keep telling you about the resurrection of the dead in Jesus Christ. In Acts 23, verse 6, verse 22, once before the council of Jews, once before Felix the governor, he says, the reason I'm on trial is because what I keep telling you is true about the resurrection of Jesus. And I hope that you with me, I want to live my life where that's, that'll get me in trouble. And that alone. But sometimes things just don't go the way we want. And I was working on this passage, and I want that to be what works me up at all times, but I was just worked up about other things. It was Monday, Tuesday, so that means it was before I spent an hours this week working on last night's talk on a biblical theology of sexuality, burdened about that, that theme in our culture about gender and sex and the complications of it. So I was going to study it, but I hadn't gotten to that as far as my deep studies this week. It was before Russia invaded Ukraine, so that's not why I was consternated. It's been very consternating. But for me, the moment on Monday, too, was just a, a thousand percent domestic and congregational. It was lack of peace in my heart about my home and about things in this body. It was my for now moment. Can I just, it's in your outline, but the for now moment. I need to ask you to enter into what I'm sharing with you, and I need you to be very honest with yourself. What have your for now moments been this week? Because when I then 
took the time and was blessed to have the calling and the role to slow down and just spend hours and hours in 1 Samuel 20, I have been confronted this week by Jonathan and the Holy Spirit's work in Jonathan and what he does in his for now moment and how his faith in something in the future trumps his feeling in the for now. And so, yes, we're going to pray deeply. We ought to be praying. Shame on us as a church and myself, particularly if we say, well, let's pray for what's going on in Ukraine, but I don't always pray for what's going on in the Congo or other places where there's just been violence and unrest by wicked things. We can always say more and we can always do it better. But my question to you is, in your what now on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, what did you do? Where did you go? What was the countenance of your heart and where... By God's spirit, were you guided to be? Because I've just felt this is a tremendously confrontational text when we're prone to anxiety and fear on one regard, anger and rage on another regard. All those things might be righteous, so don't hear me say they're not important. But ultimately, where did your for now experience as a believer take you? I think we have a lot we can learn from Jonathan. So I'm going to not read the whole chapter, but I ask you to stand with me. I'm going to read right what's in our insert because it's a long chapter. So I pulled out parts of it. This is a fantastic scene that I think we can learn tremendous things from. So this is God's word for us. First Samuel chapter 20. I'll read what's there on the top of your insert, different sections and verses. Verse one, David fled from Nioth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It's not so. But David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I've found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do. David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there's a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you've brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there's guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan say, said to David, come, let us go to the field. So they went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he's well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safely. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. 
saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Verse 24. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, Something's happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brothers commanded me to be there. So now, if I've found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he's not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. Verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, go away in peace. Because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed. And Jonathan went into the city. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Father, there's much in this. We ask you grow us. Show us Christ in it. Show us the cost of our faith. Show us the beauty of it and help us to see the future much the same as Jonathan did. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So let's walk through this. There is much risk awareness being discovered at the very beginning of this chapter. In verse 1, David's getting the picture. He's aware of his risk. Remember what we saw last week. The last time David saw Saul, Saul is lying naked on the ground under the influence of the Holy Spirit, prophesying. David realizes, though, the risk that he can't even find sanctuary with Samuel at Ramah. And so he leaves. He's certainly got a head start on Saul, but shock of shocks, he goes right to Gibeah. He goes right to Jonathan, the son of Saul. He goes to Saul's house. Fascinating. We read that he said before Jonathan. You see those little things in the Hebrew there? Well, in the English? Just that shows David knows he's subordinate to Jonathan still. He went and he said before Jonathan. He's kind of looking up to him. He's the one who's the son of the king. And he says to his friend, what have I done? What's the sin I did against your father that he seeks my life? But see, the last thing Jonathan remembers is back in chapter 19, verse 6, Jonathan had interceded to his father and said, why are you against David? What has he done to you? And Saul promised Jonathan, he gave a vow, I will not kill David. So that's the last thing Jonathan knows. Jonathan knows nothing of the attempts on David's life that we as the readers know. And so he says in verse 2, David, you're safe. If my dad was against you, I would know it. He doesn't, he doesn't hold anything from me. And David's like, dude, your dad hides stuff from you. 
He knows that we have a relationship of intimacy and friendship. He's trying to kill me. He's tried four times now. Seriously, Jonathan. And in verse 5, David says, we need to understand the scope of risk. So they make a plan. Here's the plan. At the new moon festival the next day, David says, I won't show up when your father asks me where I am. Tell him I went to Bethlehem with my family for the sacrifice. Again, we talked a little bit about that last week. That's not true. But it's in the biblical narrative because it's what happened. And we don't have the Old Testament narrative helping us understand what this must mean about David's integrity. None of that's there. We just understand David is going to hide from Saul. He says to his friend, if your dad is satisfied when I'm not there, then I know his anger's abated. But if he gets angry, I know I'm no longer welcome here. Interesting that as the text moves forward, we read that um, when, when David is anxious, he says he said essentially, if he's angry with me, I need you to deal kindly with me. Do you see that in the text there in verse 8? That's the Hebrew word hesed. Pastor Bill said this morning, we're going to hear a lot about steadfast love. In verse 8, notice who is clinging to the steadfast love of another. It's David clinging to the steadfast love of Jonathan that was made in a covenant. And he says, so if your dad's against me, promise me you'll deal kindly with me. All right, so that's where the story proceeds. They then decide that David's going to hide in the field after the festival. We didn't read all of this, but Jonathan's going to go out to the field and he's going to shoot some arrows. He's going to intentionally miss his mark. David's hidden somewhere. Jonathan's going to send a little boy out to get the arrows. And if he says to the little boy, hey, the arrows are on this side. They're over there. David's going to know it's safe for him to come out for Saul was not angry. But if Jonathan says to his servant boy, keep going. Go further. He's essentially saying to David, run. Run away for my dad's anger is against you. We know the new moon festival came. We read this. The king sits at his seat by the wall. Jonathan's opposite of him. We read that Abner is next to him. Abner is Saul's cousin and he's the commander of Saul's army. And then we read that David's seat was empty. Saul didn't say anything the first day. Hey, maybe David's unclean. The next day, David's seat is still vacant. So Saul says to Jonathan, where is David? And Jonathan says what he'd rehearsed. David asked if he could go to Bethlehem. He said it was kind of urgent that his brother actually commanded him to go. I think this is like another reference to Eliab, the oldest bossy brother of David. David, hey, you, you know how Eliab is. Your dad will believe you if he says that Eliab commanded me to come. Because we saw Eliab earlier in 17. As soon as Saul hears it, though, his anger boils and he says, You're a son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know, my son Jonathan, you've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. As long as Jesse, the son of Jesse, lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. And then get this, he says to Jonathan, You go send for David that I can kill him. Just understand what's being told to Jonathan. You obey me by going to get him. Jonathan answered, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Verse 33, Saul is so angry, he hurls a spear, not at David this time, but at Jonathan. And Jonathan knew his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan then in fierce anger stands up. He eats no food and he walks out. He was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. So the second thing we see in the text is just the righteous anger of Jonathan. 
To be true, it's defensive righteous anger. He's not going to do anything to stick out his hand and take out his father, but he is going to stick his neck out and defend the Lord's anointed David. But what happens as a result of this is that this new reality is activated. In that moment, David is going to flee, and David and Jonathan are going to part ways, and they don't know if they're ever going to see each other again. We know they see each other one more time, at least in this text. Chapter 23, they're going to see each other again. But the way it goes down is the next morning, very early, Jonathan gets up. He goes straight to that field. They had their plan. He shoots an arrow beyond the mark. Yells out to the servant boy, keep going. I mean, keep going. Keep going. The boy finds the arrow, comes back. Jonathan dismisses him immediately. David and Jonathan risk it to come see each other this potential last time. David falls down, bows before him. And they hug and they kiss one another. Do you see where it says that there? They hug and they kiss one another. Understand something in the Hebrew. That Hebrew word for one another is the same word that means a man or a friend or a neighbor. Does that word neighbor ring a bell in this whole book we've been studying? What was Saul told in chapter 15? And maybe right before that. That saga of the story where Saul's going to be rejected. Saul is told that the kingdom's going to be ripped from you and the Lord's going to give it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Now his own son Jonathan is hogging the neck of another, which means neighbor, and he's actually kissing the king. It's a reference Psalm chapter 2. It's an amazing scene. Verse 42 They depart, go, go in peace. David rises and he flees. Jonathan goes back into the city. I want you to just fathom that with me. Jonathan goes back home. What just happened? Jonathan has a new reality. He gave up his kingdom. He gave up his position within his family. He risks his life and his for now moments are going to be full of the confusion and the cost of him choosing the Lord's anointed over his own father. He's got a new reality activated. And let's understand what this actually is. See, he has to go back home alone without his friend David to his father, who's an unstable, wicked, promise-breaking, angry king who just declared that his own son is to be full of shame inside of his own house. You have now chosen the anointed to your own shame. He says it differently. He says, may the shame of your mother's nakedness be on you. Let's translate that. He's saying, you've abused your family of origin by the choice that you just made, and we are done with you. You will now be covered in shame in my kingdom, in my house, in our family, among people who used to revere you. So Jonathan's for now moment, his new reality is insecurity and shame. Because David is actually, I mean, Jonathan is actually told by his father, your kingdom will never be established. Another word there, your kingdom will never be secure now. So what Jonathan knows is when he gets back to go to the city, insecurity and shame are what have been told are what he should expect in the rejected kingdom of his father. He's the rejected one inside of the house of the rejected king. This is a question that came from AJ's notes when we do our word work. 
He said this when we talk about the application of the text. His question was, what good good is it to bind yourself to a rejected king and a rejected kingdom and a rejected world that is passing away? Sounds a little bit like the gospel, doesn't it? What, What good is it to bind yourself to something that's fleeting and going to be rejected? That's what Jonathan turned away from. What good would it be for him to be heir of a rejected throne? To be loved and praised by people in a fleeting kingdom. But I think it's good to ask the question, did Jonathan feel shame? Like what he was told he's going to experience, but did he feel this shame? He certainly felt something, but what I would propose to you is Jonathan is not preoccupied. He's not fixating on this for now existence of rejection and shame. Something else that has completely taken over him. And it is his allegiance and fixation on the steadfast love of God through David the anointed that will be his in the future. He's going to know shame in the present, but what he's fixated on is the security of his future. He's very future-minded. Look in verse 13. He says to Jonathan, I mean to, to David, excuse me, this is before they, there's a spear flying at his head. This is out in the field when they're making their plan. He says, may the Lord be with you as he was my father. How was the Lord with Saul? See, the Lord gave his spirit to Saul to anoint Saul as king and to equip him to be king. That's the way in which the spirit of the Lord was with Saul. So Jonathan, by faith, is saying, may the Lord be with you the way he was with my dad. When my dad was installed by God to serve as the anointed, Jonathan is almost looking down the pike and he's sitting there with David and he's seeing David be the king. That's essentially what we have here. Verse 14, he says, if I'm still alive, will you show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I might not die? There's that word chesed again. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord when I'm still alive. Would you position me downstream of God's steadfast love, which God's going to give to his anointed to extend to his people? David, would you do that for me if I'm still alive? Verse 15. Don't cut your steadfast love off from my house forever. So you have the steadfast love of the Lord reference, and you have Jonathan's, uh, David's steadfast love, and Jonathan's saying, I will bank on that. All of my emotions and my decisions and my realities are going to be rooted in that. And he's saying, this isn't just something I want for myself. Would this be what you promised to my house after me? He verbalizes his hope in the future. So so let's go back to my kind of excessively vague and maybe personal introduction. Will you do me a favor by the spirit in you? I want you to parallel this with your life. I want you to think with me about the four now realities in this world of sin that when sin causes fallen people to reject God the King, our world then is full of the shame of that rejection. In the Garden of Eden, what was the first thing Adam and Eve realized when they had violated the beautiful law of God? When they violated His good vision, they experienced shame. So do yourself a favor and think with me in your personal life How is this world and its kingdom threatening you with a constant experience of shame? Think of of sin and addiction in in your heart and your body. Think of things that you feel drawn to that you know are a cul de sac of emptiness, and you go to them because 
of something you're not satisfied in and this drive and the shame that covers you then when you know I have pursued something in the kingdom of this world that is empty and it's fleeting and it can't deliver and I went there anyway. Think about that. But let's expand it. Let's think about your life in relationship with your family or with the community, the culture around us. I want you to think with me about how a world that's rejected God tells the church and tells Christians who have Jesus as our king, you're shame, you're shamed and shameful in our world because of what you believe. You narrow-minded religious person. Just think about it. Think, have you been mocked or dismissed? Have you been mocked or dismissed? I know you've seen Christians. Have you been mocked or dismissed? Maybe it's in your own home where you have a shamefully, a shamefully different view of parenting. Or money. Or sex. Or how you use your time. Or what you're, how many times you're willing to forgive someone. Or in conflicts, you go to people and you acknowledge what's been laid down for, for your restoration by Jesus. You want to do that for another as opposed to gossip or slander and you're the person who stops it. And you're kind of thought of as someone that others don't want to be around as a result. We live in a world, Judges 21, 25, that says there's no king and everyone does what's right in their own eyes. So if you say that there's a king and you don't get to choose what's right and wrong, it, are you mocked? And then we have big categories. Yes, we have what the world is telling us needs to be bought, hook, line, and sinker about race. And we as the church say no. We don't do intersectionality and critical race theory. We, we believe we've been created as one race in Adam. And we don't want to evaluate anybody by some sort of a grid of scholarship that we can't understand and we don't think it's a big deal. It's a huge deal if we are not looking at brothers and sisters and saying, you were created in the image of God. And we need a new Adam to rescue those who have fallen in the first Adam. And that's our grid. Or we go in the realm of gender and sexuality. And we talked about it at length last night for the 30 of us that were together. Of how difficult it is to try to make sense to a world that keeps changing their own standard and could care less. And they snicker at those who would be outdated or would believe in something absolute. Or worse, would believe in a beautiful vision of sexuality that's good according to our designer. What about government? Certainly, government has in every place extended beyond the boundaries God's ascribed and given its their design. Certainly, we're also called to pray for government leaders. And as you navigate that world, you've been shamed, mocked at. See, I, I can't go into your world, but I want you to think about your for now. Here's my question. Does the shame that the world threatens you govern you? That's it. Does the shame that the world threatens you to know govern you? Because you see, it didn't govern Jonathan. Do we feel something? Yes. 
If we read the book of 1 Peter, we sure should feel like sojourners who have no place to call home. And this earth is not our home in its current state. And we're waiting for God to make all things right. But let's compare this to the early church. Acts chapter 5. The apostles are beaten and charged to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And they're let go. And when they were let go after being beaten, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor. What's a good other word for dishonor? Shame. They left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. And then every day they kept going back to the temple, which would be the religious folks, and then out on the streets from house to house, not stopping to teach and preach that Jesus is the Christ. What's the word Christ? Anointed. How can that be? Well, it's people that don't believe this world is their home. People that have a future grid that intersects their for now experience. What's the net result? It's peace, just like Jonathan. Verse 42, Jonathan and David give a word of peace to one another. I don't think it's just a regular parting. I think it's the word shalom. And he says some things about your house and my house forever. So it's not just a goodbye, friend. That word peace means something. I th think of Romans 5. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have peace with one another forever as we anticipate his house being our house. John, John 16, said, in this world you'll have affliction, but in me, Jesus said, you will have peace. Think of Paul over and over at the end of his journeys as he was getting closer to Rome. He's, he's just got this piled up experience of mockery, manipulation against him. He's been beaten. He's been abused. He's been certainly assaulted with the shame of the world around him. What is Paul's major countenance? Is it anger? Is it fear? Because of the threat of shame and rejection? I would say no and no. It's crazy. He's got joy. He's got so much joy that he sits before anybody who would let him hear and he says, hey, do you all want to know about the Jesus that I have seen be resurrected? Would you instruct us? Yeah, actually, I hope all of you will be instructed and believe this with me. He had this countenance about him. All he knew is I'm on trial for believing in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the resurrection of all the dead who are in Jesus. Just like Jonathan Paul's for now was in the future. So I guess the word confront that I shared at the very beginning of our time is a word that I mean, how does that confront you? If you tend to be consumed by either anxiety or anger in the for now. Maybe it doesn't confront you with sort of a aggravation. Maybe it comforts you because you forget about the future that's secure. Consider that the future described in this text is not just a, a little bit in the future. The word forever is a strategic part of this whole passage. So I'm going to kind of wrap it up. And, and I want us to dance not around something. Let's dance with something we've already somewhat referenced. From the lips of Jonathan, the word forever keeps coming. Verse 13 to 17. Before he stands before his father and is angry and defends David. While they're still out in the field, Jonathan says, when you're king, if I'm alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. And don't cut your love off from my house forever. 
When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, I want to know that I've not been cut off from the steadfast love of the Lord through his anointed. See, see, it's almost like what we're hearing Jonathan say is, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's essentially saying, if I'm still alive, show me steadfast love. But if I'm gone, care for my house after me. That's how much of a forever grid Jonathan has. And he goes so far out into forever, he actually referenced the final day of judgment when the Lord's anointed reigns over all the earth again and all wickedness has been dealt with and the final judgment has happened and mercy is all that's known and there's no more threats anymore. That's embedded, believe it or not, in verses 13 to 17. His words remind me of Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, verse 10, when she trusts that there's going to be a king who's going to come that's going to reverse everything. Jonathan has the same faith here too. Notice the difference between Jonathan's view of forever and his father's threat for the moment. If you look in the text in verse 31, when Saul is so angry, all he can say is, as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you're never going to have a kingdom. So even Saul, his words, he knows that when his authority that God's allowed him to have for that time and space and that allotment, and I'm referencing like Acts 17 now, that's all he can do is make comments about that tiny little space and time. That is so opposite what Jonathan says about David, the Lord's anointed. It's as if Jonathan is already believing and has almost already heard the covenant God's going to make with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7 is where David is given the covenant from God. And here's what God says. I will establish the throne of David's kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. My steadfast love will never depart from him. That's 2 Samuel 7. It's not been said to David yet, not when he's a king. And it's as if Jonathan, almost prematurely, out in the field says, when that happens, please don't cut your steadfast love off from my house forever. Jonathan's not going to live to see it. In chapter 31, Jonathan's going to die with his father. But you know that in the very next generation, the covenant faithfulness of David starts to prove true. Anybody heard of the name of a boy named Mephibosheth? 2 Samuel chapter 9, David's the king. Jonathan, his best friend, is gone. And David says, is there still anybody in the house of Saul that I can show mercy to? Anybody. Guess what the word mercy is? Chesed. Steadfast love. And some servant named Ziba says, Yes, king, there's still a son of Jonathan. He has crippled feet. And David sends for Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth comes before David. He throws himself on the ground. And David says, Mephibosheth. And he says, I'm here to be your servant. And David said to him, Do not be afraid of me, for I will show you Chesed, steadfast love for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I'm going to restore to you all the land that was once your father's land. And you will eat at my table always. Second Samuel 9 verse 11. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table every day as if he was one of the king's sons. Who should be rejected by David? 
but the house of his enemy. And what does David do? But he extends his covenant love that he committed with Jonathan to the least likely and the least deserving. This mangled little boy becomes a son of a king. Folks, if that's true of David being that faithful to his brother Jonathan because of his covenant faithfulness, how much more is it true for us when we consider the greater son of David, Jesus, the Lord's anointed? In the gospel of God, is it not true that all of our shame has been promised to be covered by David's greater son, Jesus, the Lord's anointed? All of it. Is it not true that those of us who should be rejected in the house of the king are offered positions as sons and daughters of God in spite of ourselves? Is it not true that the only way this could be is that God caused his own son to bear the full shame of those who rejected him? Mark 15, 34, Jesus cried out, naked and ashamed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer from the Father is because I'm not going to forsake those who turn to you as they're anointed. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he became sin and shame that we would become the righteousness of God. No shame whatsoever. The net result is there should be an experience by you and by me of no shame in the for now. Never mind the threats of the world. Never mind the looming threat of our corrupt selves that will not, will not be victorious over the power of the Spirit of God that's inside of us. We live in a world that's lost its mind and is visibly losing its mind in wickedness and evil. I'm not surprised because I know what my own heart apart from the grace of the Holy Spirit, could do, would do, wouldn't know how to stop doing. But the gracious work of Jesus, our anointed in the gospel, is essentially this. If you are allegiant to the Lord's anointed, that's actually the only way that your future is guaranteed to have no shame. And that's what we see in this chapter. Let me read a closing text of Scripture, and we'll pray. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 4 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, how about witnesses like Jonathan? Let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood see sacrificial allegiance in the for now to the king who will forever remove all shame is the only way to not know shame in the for now. So let me ask you, is this text confrontational or comfortational? Because sometimes we forget it. We need to be comforted. But at the same time, we need to be confronted if we're consumed with the threats of this world.
when we ought to be consumed with the security of our anointed. Let me pray. Father, would we be secure in Jesus and delight to declare the good news of the gospel of what you've done to cover our sin and shame. Thank you for the mercy and the steadfast love of the anointed. As we partake now and as we feast, would we believe that because of the work of our anointed, we can feast as those who are sons and daughters at the table of the king. We don't deserve it. We deserve the rejection of your anointed. But Lord, because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, that wrath has been spent. And would we delight to be your sons and daughters? Nourish us now by this table. Would we taste and see that you're good? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Scripture says that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he also took the cup after supper. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink from it all of you. For as often as you eat the bread or drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this is not the table of Christ Community Church or the Presbyterian Church in America. This is the table of those who belong to the Lord's anointed. Come boldly to partake of this table. If you don't believe in the need for the wrath of God to be spent against Jesus for the shamefulness of our sin that needed to be rejected, the scriptures say don't partake. This table is for those who believe that our sin has been covered by God in Christ. And would you take and eat with joy without shame? As we see three servers up here coming, just please note... The tray, the light cup in the tray is grape juice. The dark cup is wine. If you're sitting on the outside sections, would you please come down the aisle right in front of you and circle back to the outside? If you're in the middle section, would you please come down this side and circle back this way? You can come to the center server. And then after there's maybe some vacancies, just go to whoever is open. Would God bless us as we collide at his table with joy and shamelessness? Let me pray. Father, nourish us now by means of this sacrament. Thank you for Jesus. Enable us to understand that there is no longer a threat over our identity because of his work. And would our identity be full of fearless, shameless, covenant joy? Because you have kept your promise and you sent your anointed to do what was required for us to know your steadfast love. Would this be a meal of faith and anticipation? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.